Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. From the Milton Metz studio in the Radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host WFIU, WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. By the middle of the 2000s, the United States was in the midst of a housing bubble. Soaring real estate prices finally reached an untenable and unrealistic level. And when the market corrected, millions of Americans lost equity as their assets were suddenly worth less than their mortgage. As a result, the American economy plunged into a crisis and recession of a level not seen since the Great Depression. It's been 10 years since then, and today we're going to discuss that housing bubble and how the recovery has gone 10 years later. We have three guests in the studio with us. Matt Kinghorn is Senior Demographic Analyst with the Indiana Business Research Center. Lori Todd is broker, owner, and founder of Choice Realty and Management and a member of the Indiana Association of Realtors. And Jacob Seip is the executive director of the Indiana Housing and Community Development Authority. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. News at indianapublicmedia.org is where you can reach us if you have questions that you want to send in to us. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So thanks, all of you, for being here with us today. Ten years. Doesn't seem like it's been that long. but In some ways, maybe, but <laughs> not in others. So, Matt Kinghorn, I'd like for you to sort of frame this discussion for us. I mean, what were the forces that, that brought us to this uh, economic um, difficulty 10 years ago and how have we sort of come out of it? Well, I think at its core, the, the bubble was driven by really an, an abandoning of uh, mortgage lending standards. Uh, and kind of that, those standards or those lack of standards were met by, you know, an exuberance or an irrational exuberance of, uh, from investors, uh, from builders, from speculators and homeowners and, you know, really lots and lots of folks. And so what that caused was some, some shifts in the, the housing market that were in no way tied to any fundamentals. So I think, you know, probably the the greatest example that you can come to is looking at the prices of homes uh, relative to incomes. So uh, in the U.S., you know, for, for decades, there's been a pretty uh, long-held uh, relationship of about uh, home price being about three and a half times greater than the median household income. And during that three or four-year period of the housing bubble, that shot up to nearly five to one, that ratio. Mm-hmm. And there was no real reason for it. There wasn't any shortage of supply. In fact, there was you know, an, an excess of building going on, and there was a lot of construction happening, even though that there was high vacancy rates, and those vacancy rates were climbing. Uh, and then you saw uh, other factors. We saw the spike in homeownership rates, of course, and we saw a lot of uh, house flipping was really in vogue at that time, so that uh, speculation or flipping uh, really drove the market, especially in some areas in Las Vegas or in Florida, places like that. So that was really, I think, what triggered uh, the the whole the whole housing bubble. Mm-hmm. Laurie, from your perspective, um, so what were the fundamentals that people were getting away from back then? Uh, no money down. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the loan the loan process that Matt mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it was very common to go to a closing table and see buyers getting checks back at closing. <laughs> um, they were doing first and second mortgage loans where, I mean, they had no money invested in in the property. So as that foreclosure process started to take place, they had nothing invested. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I want to ask Jacob, it's kind of the same question. I mean, what, 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 from your perspective, you know, thinking back 10 years ago, if you can think Mm -hmm. back that far, I mean, (laughs) what, what were some of the, of the key elements that, you know, you think were, were driving this? It was definitely the uh, the lack of discipline when it comes to financial underwriting on uh, well, specifically on on home ownership, and because I think the housing industry is bigger than just one sector, um, but I think the 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 bubble was really specifically um, t- 
targeted on the single family side and those those homeowners. Um, but it was a lack of discipline when it came to financial underwriting. Uh, non-conforming single-family loans at the Indiana Housing Community Development Authority. We always have conforming loans, meaning that they're uh, eligible for Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae FHA uh, loans. So um, I think some of that had to do with just um, getting relaxed in an environment where, um, like was mentioned, uh, builders were being more aggressive on, on building. Um, without really understanding the, the true market need uh, in each of the communities. Mm-hmm. Matt, you mentioned abandoning of mortgage lending standards. So have we improved since then, or what have we learned? Yeah, I think there's been a, you know, we've snapped back to, I think in, in most ways, back to kind of sensible uh, lending standards. And so that's why we've seen, you know, in Indiana, we have, right now we have our lowest foreclosure rate that we've had in 18 or 19 years. And so that's because... Mortgages that are uh, being originated now are are sound, and so you know before the uh, before the Great Recession, even when the housing bubble was uh, taking place and foreclosure rates were low nationally, here in Indiana we had really high foreclosure rates, the highest in the country. Us and our neighbors, Ohio and Michigan, uh, and so but that that situation has uh, been remedied quite a bit just because of these uh, tighter lending standards. So people are having to bring more to closing than now? Yes, and I, I think actually they tried to overcorrect a mm-hmm. little bit of that loan process. So it really tightened up the lending and actually made it harder for qualified buyers to come into the market. And that's why it was kind of a slow recovery for a little while. Um, but, what do you mean over-tightened? What did they um, just their, um Just the laws, the guidelines, all of the, the lending... Um, they had trade mm-hmm. government policies. Right, what, I think what, I just just people who who were good bets, who were good mortgages, were still locked out of the market just because there was probably an overcorrection in terms of lending standards there for a while. Just because everybody was, uh, you know, understandably uh, still shell shocked, I think, yeah. uh, and and concerned about you know repeating past mistakes. So, Laurie, you know, as a as a real estate professional, I mean, what were were you seeing the signs back then and saying how long can this go on, or was it something that took you by surprise when it actually finally burst? No, I think we knew it was coming. I mean, you can only withstand that type of activity for so long. We did see, you know, the the spec homes going up, the builders' activity, um, the buyers coming in, multiple offer situations, pricing over full price. Selling within hours, I mean minutes, even mm-hmm. at some point, and, and you know that that can't go on very long. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, something had to give, and um, I think that the lending part, when, once that slowed down and or just kind of stopped, you you can't withstand that. Mm-hmm. So, what's the? Uh, you know, I'm trying to take myself back ten years. I mean things were going like going crazy in the tech industry and money was just easy to get was I mean that was all part of this issue, right? I mean people were just so optimistic that well I can pay this much for a house because I'm gonna keep making money and my investments are gonna keep rising and I mean was that all part of this issue? Well I think um, you know if we if we look back, this bubble came on the heels of the dot-com bust as well. And so if we think of, look back to the 2000s, there was really recessions, you know, bookended that decade. So we had the recession in about 2000, 2001 or so. And then obviously the Great Recession at the uh, end of the decade. And so it was that, that housing bubble that really drove kind of that period of expansion between those those two recessions. Uh, and so, you know, it was, it was, in some ways, it was kind of a false expansion because it was, it was really bubble-driven. And so, in some ways, it's trying to, I think, uh, replace some of that demand lost in the, the dot-com bust and, and that sort of thing, especially in out west and, you know, some of those markets. Leading up to the recession, it seems like there was – maybe it was unspoken, but sort of this idea that you should own real estate. It's what you, it's what you do. I mean, Jacob, do you think that, that mentality – was that real and is that a thing? Well, it definitely is a real. And uh, for most of us, owning a home is probably going to be your largest asset that you'll ever have. Um, and so, you know, I think there's, there's, we shouldn't downplay the importance of being a homeowner. 
Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's, res- that it's for everybody. What we should be focused on is responsible homeownership and making sure that in the, when you become a homeowner that you understand what that means, having uh, gone through housing counseling, uh, making sure you understand your property taxes and maintenance. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, when 2008 happened, there's been a negative cast on being a homeowner or what does that mean and what, look what it did to the economy. But we also had to realize that what happened was more about subprime lending. It wasn't, it wasn't everybody and it, wasn't, it, was, it was some bad actors in the subprime lending market that caused it. Uh, it was those non-conforming loans where they were taking homeowners, potential homeowners, and not verifying their assets and their income and just putting them into loans that set them up to fail because they would do amortization with interest only with a balloon payment. So you knew you had to refinance in 10, five years. So it was about setting people up to fail from the very beginning with that subprime market. But today, I think Matt hit it on the head. You know, um, we are much more disciplined in how we're underwriting and making sure we, you know, we've learned from those mistakes. At ICDA, we never have gotten into the subprime market uh, and never will because that's because we want to promote responsible home ownership with good strong products. I think we have to be careful now too, as we talked about overregulation. You know, if, to be able to afford a home, you have to have a, most people have to have be able to afford that for thirty years. Um, you know, if you overregulate and you say that you you can only have a mortgage at twenty years or fifteen years, now all of a sudden, home ownership. That is not affordable for anyone, uh, especially uh, for those first-time home buyers and those that are just starting their career, just starting their their family. So, I think we have to be careful about the overregulation, which was mentioned. Uh, but also remember, this was a subprime market, really, that caused this. Could you? I'm going to ask because I, I get to ask the dumb questions. So, can you <laughs> explain a little bit uh, more to me the subprime lending? I mean, what what sure. does that mean? What's a, what's kind of define that for me? Sure. Well, I'll let them also. But, you know, it was really, like I mentioned, uh, being able to come in and not verifying those income, um, being uh, having high interest rate loans um, that were above market. So, again, there were just certain things that were being put in place because they didn't have to conform with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. Um, and it was driven uh, by high returns for investors. Um, and so that, those were the th- areas that when you talk about subprime. Mm-hmm. So if I was coming to you and, uh, or I was going to Lori and, and I said, okay, my bank is – they've approved me for this loan. Right. I mean, can you describe what kind of – like what might, might my terms have been? If, if it was like something that you, you would have been able to say, oh, my gosh, this is, this is trouble. It's going to be trouble. Yeah. You know, I would say interest-only payments for 15 years where you have to refinance in, in five years. And so you have to go back to the bank to refinance it or they're, they're expecting you to – they're going to call the loan. They're going to expect you to pay off all of it in, in five years. So those are the things – again, those are the red flags. Those are the things that you're seeing out there that say, yeah, there's a bubble coming when you know you have these loans that are going to be maturing in five years. And obviously people can't pay all that off. Yeah. So, so I've got – I'm buying a $200,000 house and in 5, 10, 15 years I'm still going to owe – Two hundred thousand dollars, and I want to paid off that first dollar, right? Right. I mean, I remember having buyers talk about their loan approvals, and they had an eighty percent loan to value, and it was a conforming loan. But then they would have a twenty percent loan that was the non-conforming, so it was a higher interest rate. Sometimes the interest only, and then you know that's they're all excited because they can get into the house with no money down. But in five years. They still owe a hundred percent of that twenty percent loan. They can't afford to refinance. They've they've, you know, over borrowed, mm-hmm. and that's where people really got in a mess. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. I, I think the one thing when we talk about the subprime market is, I think a lot of people think well, subprime mortgages were just offered to people who wouldn't uh, qualify for a prime mortgage. But I don't. That wasn't really the case. A lot of people who would have qualified for prime mortgage still went subprime, uh, and especially speculators, because it was a way to easily leverage uh, buying multiple homes and expecting to then flip those a year later, and whatnot. And so people, that, that's not maybe not as big a deal here in Indiana, but certainly in those you know those prime states of Florida, Arizona, Nevada, California, places like that, it was a pretty common practice to. You know, you could buy these houses and not put anything down, 
and you could try to sell them for, you know, and hope that the prices increase 15 or 20 percent in a year because the prices were going crazy. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was also a big part of the subprime market. If you want to join our program today, we're talking about uh, it's been 10 years since the housing bubble burst, and we're talking about the recovery from that, how it happened, the recovery from it. We'll get into, I'm sure, what the housing market's like now. If you want to join us, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or one 285 9348 outside the Bloomington area. Or you can reach us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And it looks like we have a phone call from Sarah. So, Sarah, go ahead. Okay, hi. Uh, my question is, do you see the effects of what I call the Brazilification? Like, basically, you have a growing group of very wealthy people who can have a lot of money to kind of throw around in the housing market. You have, say, someone sends their kid to IU, they live elsewhere, they buy their kid an apartment house in Bloomington. So you have people who have a lot of money to kind of, you know, to afford and kind of drive the prices up. And then you have a widening gap between them and people who are actually getting poor, like a sliding middle class that's going into working class. So I guess I want to know if you see effects or see that as a, a factor in the housing market. Okay. Who wants to start on that? <laughs> well, yeah. I I see, um, you know, we, we do see a lot of parents come in and buy homes and uh, townhomes for college students while they're here. That market, it, they're still really a homeowner, and they're just within the city, you know, around the campus area. So... I don't know that that impacts the pricing of our community. I I do think, you know, in 2017 compared to 20, you know, 2007, um, prices have gone up quite a bit. I don't know that that is it impacted by the college student purchases. However, I do know that back when the bubble burst, luckily – our IU community and Purdue and even South Bend uh, definitely were less impacted from the foreclosure market and the bubble bursting compared to the rest of Indiana. Mm-hmm. So it was actually a really good thing having IU here. Yeah. So the, these parents that are coming in and buying homes, are they generally buying you know condominiums, townhouses, instead of like a single-family home in a neighborhood? Uh, I think it's mixed. The students actually, I think that market actually has lessened. The students are wanting the shiny new apartments. And so the old older homes that we see around campus are not as appealing to the IU student market. Um, parents do look at homes, you know, a two-bedroom, three-bedroom, four-bedroom house, and then their child can have roommates and helps cover the mortgage by the rent payment. Okay. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Do you have any follow-up? Well, I just, um, not only the IU student, but you see an emerging class of people who are very, you know, kind of wealthy uh, and kind of growing in their economic power versus people who maybe, you know, 20 years ago could afford a home but now are less able to do so or not able to make good on their loan. Or I guess it's just like an economic trend in this country. It just seems like there's people, a growing class people with a lot of money, and then there's also, on the other end, people are getting, you know, poorer and poorer, you know. And I just wondered if it created a dichotomy. So. Okay. Well, thanks. Thank you. Anybody thanks. have a react? I have, I have a way to reframe that question if you, unless you want to. I mean, I, we, we hear a lot in Bloomington about how it's harder and harder to get into the um, – the single family, the first home, the the starter home, as it were, and I think that's part of this. Part of her question, perhaps, is that there are there's a lot of inventory at the higher end, but single family homes at the lower end for like the working class people, yeah. it, there's less and less. Yep. So, um, what's going on around the state right now, um, and it is specific to each community. So I have to paraphrase that, but and it's not just in Indiana; it's national issue. When 2008 happened, builders stopped building starter homes, and really they have never came back. Um, today they're building executive homes uh, because of the the um, the profit margin is higher. You know, to build five starter homes, you would receive the profit to build one executive home, and so the incentive. And, and after 2008, one thing we haven't talked about was the loss of builders. You know, in Indiana, I think we lost maybe 50 percent of our builders. So today. 
for that 10 years, there really has been very little, if any, uh, starter home production being built in the state. Um, and so now we have this backlog. Um, and now, we, today, we, have, we do have higher um, incomes, and, and, and people um, go over income for our programs, and so they don't qualify. And that what we would call it like the missing middle. So they're not eligible for certain federal programs. Maybe it be down payment assistance or a mortgage credit certificate. Um, and, and builders are building at the higher end. Um, so one of the things that we need to continue to think about in, at IHCDA, we've been having pub, you know, policy questions about what is workforce housing and, and what's the role in that? How do we get our builders to begin building our, our starter homes again? Uh, another thing that happened in 2008 uh, was that we had a lot of not-for-profits across our state that were building single-family homes and promoting homeownership through homeownership counseling, but then also having a product once they graduated from homeownership counseling. Today, that doesn't really exist. Outside of the Habitat for Humanity, they're the only not-for-profit that's really building single-family homes. There's another group on the Near East side of Indianapolis that is doing it, but for the most part, those community housing development organizations have not come back to uh, building single-family homes again. So we, we do have a, a gap on production, and we, but there is a, a market for it. So yeah. I'll just uh, maybe put some numbers to, to what, they're, uh, what they're talking about. Is if you look at the home ownership rate in uh, Indiana, right now it's about 68 or 69%. Uh, and it's down about three percentage points from where it was at the peak in 2006 or so. But that's masked somewhat by the size of the, the aging baby boom population. So the older you are, the more likely you are, you are to own your home. But if you look at some age-specific homeownership rates, if you look at, uh, say, the age group 25 to 44, that age, the homeownership rate for that age group is down about 8 percentage points between today and 2007. So that's a, a pretty pretty stark decline. And so it's a lot of this what we're talking about. There's also other factors, uh, you know, mounting student debt, uh, uh, other other factors that play into it. But a, that's a pretty sharp drop in homeownership rate in just 10 years. Lori, maybe you could talk specifically about Bloomington. I know, Bob, you've, you've done it a lot of the paper, and we've done a lot of reporting just about how difficult it is still to get to get a house here in, here in Bloomington, especially those sort of homes that you would want to be your first home. It seems like they get on the market and they go. Well, so low inventory. You know, we've been saying low inventory for the past year or two, and um, and I think Monroe County and the entire state of Indiana has seen low inventory. So when you have a home listed, you know, it's so hard right now to even find a $100,000 home. I mean, you almost say that doesn't even exist anymore. Um, if if you find a, you know, three-bedroom ranch, it's going to be 140 150 and that's going to go within hours and be in a multiple offer situation. So our inventory is actually... 60% lower than it was in 2007. And so when you, you know, you talk about the seller's market versus buyer's market, um, it, everything is so tight right now that, you know, buyers are getting frustrated now because they can't act fast enough. But back in, you know, 10 years ago when that, when that was, everything was high peak, you know, it was a buyer's market and... Or, you know, at that time, the buyers could get in there and the prices were going up. So um, I think right now, buyers are truly frustrated just because they can't find anything. And, you know, our our area here, 175 180 is the average sell price. And and I think that actually even uh, went up over 200000 in August. So... Um, you know, prices are going up. Buyers are being frustrated. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition as we talk about um, housing. And, uh, you know, it's 10 years since the housing bubble, and we're talking about how far back or how far uh, we've come since then and what some of the other issues are. So uh, we'll be taking your questions after the break, 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send us a note, a question at news at indianapublicmedia.org. We'll be right back.
from the Milton Met Studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville, online at smithville.com. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. We have three guests in the studio with us today as we talk about um, housing issues. We have Matt Kinghorn, who's a senior demographic analyst with the Indiana Business Research Center. Jacob Seip, the executive director of the Indiana Housing and Community Development Authority. And Lori Todd, broker, owner, and founder of Choice Realty and Management and a member of the Indiana Association of Realtors. Our phone numbers, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the local area. You can also reach us, news at indianapublicmedia.org or on Twitter at Noon Edition. We've been talking a lot about how these people who got subprime loans then lost their homes because they didn't have any equity built in it. So I'm just wondering, um, Lori, maybe you can speak to have those, where are those people 10 years later they've been able to recover? Yeah. So I think some of those people um, that bought at peak pricing and weren't able to sell their home if they had a job change or relocated, they actually, some of those who didn't want to go down that foreclosure process were able to convert into a rental home where, you know, they moved on, moved out of state, moved jobs, whatever. They turned around and went to rent for a lesser price and were able to lease out their home so at least they covered their mortgage. So we actually did that at my company. I was Fortunately, I had a management department already established when the market burst. So I was able to help a lot of homeowners convert from being the homeowner to an investor. And my management department actually, I mean, it more than doubled. It probably grew about 120% in those couple of years. And so then over those next few years, once the market recovered, we started selling, you know, houses a, a few at a time. I would just kind of put that out there to them. Some were able to, you know, some just had to stay put. They struggled and and did what they had to do to avoid that foreclosure. But a lot of them were able to rent their homes out to cover the payment. So, but I assume this would be something that follows you, right? I mean, if if you had to foreclose, then that that's going to make it that much harder. Yeah, you know, what is it? Five, Five to seven years, it makes it very difficult. So those previous homeowners turn into tenants for several years um, and, you know, become in the rental market and have to have all of those frustrations that come along with that. Jacob, I probably should ask you this at the very beginning of the show, but can you sort of outline what the Indiana Housing and Community Development Authority is? Sure. We're a quasi-agency of the state of Indiana. Um, and so we offer single-family products uh, for uh, first time or, or, and, uh, or if you're buying your second home. But there are income restrictions on there, uh, down payment assistance, mortgage credit certificate. We also provide financing and tax credits for multifamily housing. Um, and then uh, we also administer some anti-poverty programs through community action agencies like weatherization, energy assistance program. Um, we also administer the Indiana Foreclosure Prevention Network at IHCDA. Uh, So you mentioned foreclosure prevention and what happened. Uh, We, on July 1st, we opened it back up. So what we were seeing was residents who were in their homes but had gotten behind and needed some assistance to bring them current. And so the IHCDA offers a reinstatement payment for qualified homeowners who have been delinquent 
up to $30,000, a one-time payment to bring their loan current. Because that's what we're seeing today in terms of when it comes to foreclosure prevention is some folks got behind. Um, but now they got a job. They're doing pretty well. They can sustain that mortgage payment. And so now we just need to get them current so that they can remain in that home. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to ask Lori to just give us some, you know, for a first-time home buyer, a first-time home buyer came to you, I mean, what, what are some tips you would give them how to, how to get into the, the home buying market? Yeah, so when a buyer comes to me um, to start that process, you know, first first and foremost, we're going to go talk to a loan officer and get the loan approved and talk about their debt-to-income ratios. Um, and really, we kind of go through that timeline of, are they renting now? Do How much of a down payment do they have? What's their credit score? I mean, there's so many things. And I and I sit down with them for about an hour before we jump in the car and go look at a house. You know, so many times buyers will just want to go look at a house. And we'll, what we'll find out is, you know, they they don't even have 3% to put down or, you know, they have to work on their savings and maybe in six months they will have that. So really, I think just um, doing that, the proactive work and the preliminary work of trying to get them um, lined up to put to go into a good loan to know what they're going to do. And I think we mentioned before of, you know, a 30-year mortgage is pretty common for a first-time home buyer, but also um, to talk about the maintenance that comes after it. You know, I always tell my people, you know, at the closing, um, now the work begins because they need to budget for maintenance and taxes and insurance and all of that. And people tend to forget that up front when they're having fun looking at houses. Mm-hmm. Matt, how much should people, I mean, really, what's what's a good ratio that you recommend in terms of home expenses versus your income? Well, there's, you know, the kind of the housing cost burden uh, threshold is usually around, you don't, don't want to get over 30 to 33 percent, I think. Um, Jacob might have other uh, ideas on that. But generally, if you look at the Census Bureau or others who will kind of try to measure how many People are under a, a severe housing cost burden. It's usually that 33% or 35% that they, they look at of um, housing expenses to total income. Mm-hmm. And that's not just your mortgage. That's all that's, of the bills associated with it? That's utilities and, yeah, just any, anything associated with your, uh, with, your, with, your, with your payment, whether rent or, or mortgage. Yeah, I, I know that the times I bought a house, it just seems like every time I was turning around, there was something else I had to pay. T- you know, yeah. The first time was like $100, and then the second time was like, Two hundred dollars, and the third time was like four hundred dollars. <laughs> it seemed like there was always something else that that I had to pay for. So there are a lot of a lot of costs involved, and a lot of ongoing costs involved. And I think if we go back to like two thousand seven, eight, nine, those people who were maxed out and really stretched on their mortgage payment didn't have two hundred dollars to fix a water heater when it goes out, and you know, so it just spiraled from there. Mm-hmm. So it seems like another thing, in addition to just subprime mortgages, and all, it, people just were buying everything on credit, right? Like it was people using too many credit cards and really spending for things that they didn't have. Have we have we learned in that area, Matt? I mean, are we saving now? Well, we, we, we're doing better. Um, that's, that's, that's one uh, thing, you know, when we look at Kind of when you look at, well, okay, how did this housing bubble, how did that spill over into the Great Recession? You know, uh, and, and so the, it's, the housing market was really driving the economy in, in a big way at that time. Not only was uh, construction as a share of GDP was at its highest really since kind of back, you know, a few years after World War II or so. as the only other time that's been uh, close to as high as it was during the bubble period. But then there was also something called that housing wealth effect. Uh, and so people – See, they, they perceive that their house is worth a lot more and, and, fa- and kind of, in effect, doing their saving for them. And so over that period, we saw the, the savings rate in the U.S. just at, at a record low. And so we're kind of back now to what would be, you know, a, a normal trend in, in that savings rate. Uh, at the same time, not only were people not saving, but there was really an explosion in uh, something called cash-out refinancing at that time. So people would refinance their house. Their new mortgage would be, or their new loan would be more than they needed to pay off their old loan, and so they would have that money to spend. Uh, and so these, all of these combined to be, you know, uh, a big source of demand in the economy, a big injection of money into the economy that really disappeared overnight, you know, or seemingly overnight, or in a year or two. And so, and there was really nothing to replace all that, all that economic activity. Gee. But but the, the savings rate is kind of back 
on trend now, and so we're and hopefully we're still seeing you know a little more discipline in that area. It's going to follow up with Jacob, but we have a phone call, so I'll go to the phones first. Derek's on the line. Derek. Yeah, hi. I just wondered if there, um, the panel could talk about possible economic alternatives. For example, we're experiencing the same thing that Portland and other big cities, uh, expensive inner core and a cheaper suburban core for housing. Um, and in some cities in Florida and California, they have really nice mobile home courts, uh, which is a good starter opportunity. But here, you don't see many people pushing for that. Uh, in fact, the state of disrepair in many of the courts I've driven around them is, uh, well, they, need, they have some management issues. But it's uh, such a wonderful uh, low-income starter thing. It's really big in other cities where they're really managed and really nice homes. And the other is suburban development. Do you see cheaper homes the farther you drive out? And would Bedford ever become a uh, sleepy suburb of Bloomington? It's a short, short 20-minute commute compared to the hour-and-a-half commute in other cities. And we got 20 minutes uh, from Bedford here and a lower, much lower cost of housing. So there's two alternatives, if you guys could discuss them, the mobile, mobile home thing and the possibility of Bedford and expanding suburbs. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. Laura, do you want to? Yeah, I'll... I'll um mentioned, I know Bedford is actually really busy with their market activity right now. I do see a difference in um, the, the city of Bloomington versus the outlying county. Rural, the real estate market, um, it's still active. It's a little slower. You know, what may take a few hours in the city to sell may take a few weeks in the in more of the rural area to sell, but we're still seeing a lot of activity in there. I do think um, south and west, when we get into the Lawrence County and Greene County area, you do definitely have a, you know a better dollar per square foot value. Um, and I I think one of the problems, even though you have it's more affordable or you get more home for your money. Cheaper taxes, maybe, um, but you also have a lot of people are spending more in gas. People are more active in schools, so parents have to run back and forth. So that's not really as appealing as being more urban. Yeah, Ellettsville is really growing. Oh, there. they are they are really booming and they're doing great. Um, and that kind of talks about even just I know you know the. Richland Bean Blossom School, the schools are very active, so people are being able to, to be there, and they're still close to their school system, and it's an easy drive to downtown or IU, having 46, you know, improved several years ago. Mm-hmm. We don't really have any government officials here, but I will say, Derek, there was a meeting yesterday that involved some people from city and county government as well as um, Pete Youngman from Cook and people from the local business community. And there was a theme that ran through that meeting that it's really difficult to find single-family housing in Bloomington. And Pete Youngman from Cook uh, actually said that their people that work at their company are looking at Ellettsville and they're looking at Green, Spencer, Green County, Lawrence County, all around. There was also a discussion about, uh, and you know, we, it's dangerous for me to even bring this up, but the impact of, of different local policies, zoning laws and whatnot. And um, the consensus in that meeting was it was going to be more difficult to even build any single-family housing outside of Bloomington in Monroe County going forward because of some policies that are working their way through county government. So it's a, it's a multi, uh, multi-layered issue. So, so um, for a first-time home buyer, to, uh, we, we talked a lot about price point, um, and you heard a lot about how price points are well above 250 uh, and that's that's pretty high for you know for someone for to buy a first time home uh, today though also we haven't talked about manufactured housing or modular housing um, ten years ago it was um, you know the product may not have been the best product but today it's completely different the technology that they, we have to to build modular housing and to know it's not you wouldn't even recognize it as being a stick built home and then those homes. Modular homes, manufactured housing uh, on a foundation, um, not a trailer, but on a foundation, um, you know, they're much more highly energy efficient um, than a stick-built home are. 
And so the other thing is, too, uh, HUD FHA was not allowing single-family mortgages on those those types of products. Today, that's changed. At IHCDA, uh, on July 1st, we did open that back up so we can finance modular housing again. Uh, so we're back to doing that. But that is a... Those, the, the turnaround time on those as well is, can, can come onto market a lot quicker than a stick-built home. Uh, and they can be at that price point for that entry level first-time home buyer as well. I think that's what Derek was talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. about yeah, having... and, and that you just have to find the land, you know, which mm-hmm. we always say they don't make land anymore. So it's <laughs> finding the land is what is starting to be a challenge as well. Mm-hmm. Right. If you have a question or a comment, please give us a call at 812-855-0811. Or toll free one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also contact us news at indianapublicmedia dot org, and you can reach us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Matt, I just wanted to ask about some of the of the economic trends that you've seen, the changes that you've seen over the last ten years. You talked about some with with um, home ownership. Are there other things we should be aware of? Um, well, we've, you know, I mean, a lot of the kind of the headline uh, economic numbers look pretty good. So, you know, the uh, new unemployment rate numbers came out today, and it's we took another step down, and it's very low. Uh, GDP growth is is doing well. Um, you know, so a lot of those uh, numbers look good. But I think that there are still some lasting effects that uh, maybe don't get as much uh, publicity. Uh, you know, one of those I had talked about being uh, the really you know, sharp decline in homeownership for younger folks. Uh, another would be that people in general just aren't moving around as much uh, as, as they were in the past. And so here in Indiana, if we look, uh, you know, in the, like in the 1990s, we averaged about 17,000 or 18,000 uh, net in migration per year in the 90s. In the 2000s, that was about 9,000 or so. So far in this decade, or really since the Great Recession, it's been about 1,000 or 2,000 in there. So growth in the state is as low as we've seen since the mid-1980s. Uh, and another factor there and another factor that kind of ties in with the lower home ownership rate is that we've seen a sharp decline really, again, almost overnight with the Great Recession in, uh, in fertility rates. Mm-hmm. And so there are far fewer births. I, you know, I've estimated that if we had the same uh, kind of age-specific fertility rates that we had in 05, 06, 07, if we had those in effect uh, the last uh, 10 years or so, we would have about 75,000 more births in Indiana than we've actually had. So these are... I think there's just been some pro- profound shifts, uh, and, and especially with younger folks, uh, people who kind of came of age during this whole this whole time. Uh, you know, with the economy in the dumps for so long, you know, really for a lot of people, all you could do was further your education. Uh, and so when you do that, you're building up more debt. Uh, you're also a little gun shy about everything you've seen with uh, home ownership. Plus, the market's really not there for you. And so a lot of these kind of these major life milestones are really being put on hold by, by younger adults. And so I think that's a, a, a pretty significant uh, impact that even though we're seeing some of the, the headline economic numbers look good, there's still some, some lingering effects. Well, that would seem to really relate to uh, home ownership, too. Mm-hmm. If that, I mean, I, I would think that young couples with families would be more interested in buying a home. Mm-hmm. Well, what we're seeing at the state level, and I see as being a single-family lender, um, our market is driven by the 27 to 31-year-olds. I mean, they are predominantly driving the housing, single-family, first-time homeowner market right now. Uh, what is interesting about that, the other demographic on that, are they're, they're single, single parents. And that is another uh, category there that is also driving demand as well. And, and again, but we're, we're more on the uh, moderate income, first-time homebuyer product. But that's where we're seeing our numbers. And if it wasn't for that 27 to 31-year-old uh, family or household, um, our numbers wouldn't be where they are today. And we'll probably uh, set another – we may come close to breaking our record for probably close to $500 million this year in single-family loans. Mm-hmm. So, you know – we're pushing so those demographics. It's interesting because, yeah, one side we hear and there is a perception that you know millennials aren't buying homes or not homeowners, and that's true. But then again, when you take a deeper dive into actually who's buying the first time home buyer, that's who it is, and they're really driving the market. Mm-hmm. Lori, what's the, what differences do you see in in your clients in the last decade or so? Has, has there been a shift? Y- yeah, you know, I think um, definitely generational changes. Um, My clientele, I actually, probably this year, I've only worked with maybe five 
buyers who have been under the age of 30. So most of mine actually have been more f- between 50 and 65 mm-hmm. that are buying. And, and usually they're, you know, buying up or actually downsizing. Um, it's the 65 plus that have their families moved on and less grandkids around. They don't need that, all of that space. So that's what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. That's most of my clientele. Um, I, I do think the millennials, they like to be you know, flexible and have that option of moving around. I think a lot of them do have the interest in home ownership and see that value there. But I also think they don't want to, they're fearful of what if they buy today at the rates that we see, you know, the pricing we see, what's going to happen in five years from now? Are they going to be upside down? Where will that head? So I think there's still that fear that they have in that age group. Mm -hmm. What's typical today for... You know, a thirty-year an interest interest rate for a thirty-year loan, and then how much do, do you think is smart to put down? Yeah, I think I think the rates are right around four and a quarter right. uh, for thirty-year fixed right now. Um, a lot of my homeowners or the home buyers that are coming in are still the FHA um, program. There's a couple of lower down payment programs that are seem to be most popular. Mm-hmm. Um, so three and a half to ten percent down is what I normally see. Mm-hmm. Um, even even in the older age group that I work with, they're they're putting less money down to go into their mortgage and saving their cash for other reasons. Mm-hmm. So, Matt, I'm curious when you're t- you said I think young people down eight percent. Is that going to cause problems? Because if we're building more to try to keep up with demand. Do we run? Do we run the risk of getting into trouble? Yeah. Well, building is still pretty slow right now. Okay. It's it's been picking up uh, the last couple of years, but it is uh, really slow, and so that's why uh, you see it in the existing home market, we keep breaking records every year, really, in, in the number of existing homes being sold, and that's because existing homes is is the market right now, and especially for the, for those first time home buyers, because as we we talked about before, the the new construction market is really towards you know the the middle or upper end. Uh, there, so, so I, I don't see uh, you know vacancy rates are low. I don't see any really overbuilding concerns right now. So, yeah, I, that was another issue that came up at the meeting yesterday was that there are not as many home builders today, mm-hmm. and the ones that there are are building the higher end. Was it you, Jacob, that said something about fifty percent? Yeah, about fifty percent or so. Of the homeowners we lost across the state. Home builders. Yeah, home builders. Yeah, yeah. I think we're. The permits right now compared to 2005 versus 2017 is about 55% lower. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a lot. And I I think we touched on it, but Habitat has actually been the number one builder for getting permits mm-hmm. um, because there's just no larger builder that's doing a lot. I've actually built um, a few spec houses myself, and I built one last year. And it was hard to get a lender to help do that. Um, they they still are not interested in spec housing. Hmm. We have a phone caller that uh, wants to get a last question in here. Angela, go ahead. Is Angela on? Yes, hi. Hi, go ahead. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to say when we moved down to Bloomington from, Anders- uh, from Anderson, we were looking at property in the North County, and nothing really seemed very feasible to us as far as cost. And so we looked at Green and Owen. We finally fell into Lawrence County. And we bought some property just a mile of the crow flies from the county line. Uh, what appealed to us was the amount of rent we could get for the price, as well as the lack of permits required. There's a lot more flexibility. You just need a septic permit to build. So we ended up putting a trailer on the property, um, lived in there for a few years, while we put a down payment on, a substantial one, through... Um, a farm loan in order to get um, land paid for. We slowly built a house, and we necessarily need a mortgage for that. So we ended up with several acres uh, for a very low price, as much as you would pay for an apartment in Bloomington. Mm-hmm. So um, just that arrangement and that flexibility of being in a different county than Monroe has allowed us, you know, to have what we have. So I know a lot of people in the rural areas um, end up building barn structures 
um, maybe not mobile homes, and so the barn structures uh, in order to save costs on building, and that way they may not require a loan throughout the process of building their home. Thank you, Angela. I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks. Uh, I want to ask one final question of all three of you. So uh, there may be some people out there listening that haven't really been thinking about, you know, buying a home at this point. So what's like one piece of advice or one reason why you would encourage them to to consider? Jacob? Well, I would start. Um, again, I would like I led off with it will probably be a household's largest asset they'll ever have. Uh, if we talk about creating wealth for yourself, uh, owning a home is probably continues to be probably the most powerful way to do that. And so, but it does require responsibility. It does require financial literacy, understanding how to save, preparing for when that water heater goes out, understanding what property taxes are and how you when those are due. And um, but don't be intimidated. It is a big process, like you mentioned earlier in the show. It it can be overwhelming. But don't allow it to be overwhelming. Take your time, uh, plan properly, and make the right decision on that. If it is right for when it, when it is right to purchase a home, then you know, look for those options. And IECDA has a, a variety of products for single family, first time home buyers. Okay, thank you, Lori. Yeah, I would just touch on that a little bit more. And you know, when I talk to, um, I teach a first time home buyer course um, with the city of Bloomington and we're working with the realtor section. And I, I tell people they really need to consider it as they're paying themselves a savings account. So talking about that largest investment that you make, to look at that if, if you plan to stay put. And, you know, some people need to rent if you plan to come and go in 12 months. Obviously, buying a home does not make sense. But if you plan to be there, look at it as an investment that you are saving money to pay yourself mm-hmm. retirement. All right. Um, Matt, we have about 10 seconds to go if you have one last quick thought. Um, well, I think, you know, I think that the market, uh, you know, is looking strong. Some people are, are concerned about prices right now. They are spiking up. But uh, but I don't think that the conditions that we saw that led to the, the bubble 10 years ago aren't aren't there now. So I think that the, the prices are, are tied to fundamentals right now. Okay, yeah. good. Thank you all for being here with us today. I want to thank Matt Kinghorn, J- Jacob Seip, and Lori Todd. Uh, it's been a, an interesting discussion. Buying homes is a is a big step, and I think you've, we've educated a lot of people today. Thank you. Thank you. For producer Patrick McGurr, engineer Mike Pashkash, and co-host Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.